please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. The reading for today is Psalm 8. I will be reading in Spanish, and the English translation will be on the screen. Oh, Señor, soberano nuestro, qué imponente es tu nombre en toda la tierra. Has puesto tu gloria sobre los cielos. Por causa de tus adversarios has hecho que brote la alabanza de labios de pequeñitos y de los niños de pecho para silenciar al enemigo y al rebelde. Cuando contemplo tus cielos, obra de tus dedos, la luna y las estrellas que ahí fijaste, me pregunto, ¿qué es el hombre para que en él pienses? ¿Qué es el ser humano para que, para que lo tomes en cuenta? Pues lo hiciste poco menos que Dios y lo coronaste de gloria y de honra. Lo entronizaste sobre la obra de tus manos. Todo lo sometiste a su dominio. Todas las ovejas, todos los bueyes, todos los animales del campo, las aves del cielo, los peces del mar y todo lo que surca en los senderos del mar. Oh Señor, soberano nuestro, que imponente es tu nombre en toda la tierra. This is God's word. Please be seated. Morning, church. My name is uh, Brian. I'm the pastor here at Trinity City Church. If I've never met you, welcome. I know we have a lot of folks that are visiting today. Uh, welcome here to the local church. Uh, first item of business, kids, uh, preschool through second grade, you may be dismissed. Reminder to uh, parents to pick up your kiddos either right before or right after you take uh, communion. We're in the middle, actually more towards the end of our sermon series called A Wonderful Life. Uh, for the visitors, we have been uh, unpacking a theology uh, that's mainly based on one of my uh, favorite theologians, where he reminds us of how glorious the gospel is, the wonderful works of the gospel, and the impact that has on our lives, and not only in saving us and transforming us, but then giving us a calling to ask, what is our salvation for? We know Jesus now. Now, what do we do with that knowledge, and what do we do with that transformative power? And so for the last several weeks, we've been looking at different areas of life where God is calling us to participate in these areas of life, uh, to participate with him in restoration. So we looked at the mission of the church, we looked at the restoration of relationships, uh, family and friendships and parenting. Last week, we looked at the restoration of work and of vocation. Today, we're looking at the restoration of culture. Next week, restoration of public life. And we'll end with where the storyline of Scripture ends, and that's the restoration of all things in the book of Revelation. So that's what we've been up to. Guess that's what you're jumping into uh, this morning. But let's pray, and then we'll take a look at Psalm 8 and this theme of restoration. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful every time this body of believers gathers. You are calling us here to be transformed by the power of your gospel, to be awakened to the life that you're calling us to, this wonderful life of knowing your glory, being satisfied in it, and this desire, Lord, that your creation and your world that is so broken may be patched back together and be brought into a life of peace. So Lord, help us to hear your word and hear your calling today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Now, when you think of culture, what comes to mind when you hear that word? In a positive sense, you probably are thinking about great institutions, maybe, like the Minneapolis Institute of Art or the Guthrie Theater. Maybe you're thinking about the global sites of something like the Eiffel Tower or the Empire State Building or great works of music from whether it's the Mozart or the Beatles or Prince or Bob Dylan or whoever you want to put on that list. Sometimes when you think about culture, those are things that are relatively positive that come to mind. But the other thing that might come to mind if you think about culture is fighting and battles and culture wars. Now, if you don't believe me that this is an aspect of thought that comes into our mind when we think about culture, just try out a little experiment. Holidays are coming up. Maybe you're thinking, man, my budget's a little tight. I can't buy presents for all my family members. Well, then at Thanksgiving, just bring up a conversation about masks or vaccines or critical race theory, and then you'll probably have less gifts to give because like, people will start fighting and relationships will be lost, and then you'll get emails from a family member or a friend, and they're just like, you're dead to me because you brought up this cultural hot topic. This is the other reality of culture. We have beautiful aspects of culture that we enjoy and we think of, and then we have this stressful battle, this reality that uh, is part of our historical moment as well. I think all these things have create this kind of love-hate relationship with culture where aspects of our life is we want to lean into it and enjoy it and other parts of it we're just like yuck i don't want to go there i don't want to engage i just want to withdraw and one of the things that i think is becoming an increasing reality that's obvious to me as a pastor is we need to reframe our view of culture not based on worldly standards or the current battles that are going on, but by going back to the scriptures, going back to God's word, going back to what God's calling is for uh, us humble people to participate in this and to think about it in a way that's more shaped by the humility and exaltation of Christ and the gospel rather than the things that I have just brought up. So we're gonna do that by starting with Psalm 8. And through Psalm 8, we're gonna be reminded of our place in God's plan, about his great calling, and then, the Christ's, and then Christ's gospel shape of restoration when it comes to culture. Look at Psalm 8 with me. The opening verses praise God for his majesty and his glory in all of creation. And then he gets to verse three to four, and he says this, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? Verse 3 is just bringing to mind, you ever have this moment where you're just looking at the stars? Sometimes you have to get out of the city to really appreciate just how beautiful and majestic the sky is and to think about all the galaxies and planets and stars and suns all over this universe and it makes you feel small and insignificant and that's what the psalmist is reflecting on is that reality i once had a cousin of mine that asked me if i thought it was odd that god created this vast expansive universe and then it seems that only intelligent life only humanity created in his image is occupying this small amount of real estate on planet earth don't you think that's odd, he asked me. And I said, that's exactly the point of why God created it this way. Why the universe and the creation is so big is because when you take it all in, you start to be 
insignificant. You are humbled in that point. Verse 2 of Psalm 8 says, Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. There's this contrast between babies and infants and the enemy and the avenger. And the point of that is to show a contrast between weakness and strength and weakness against strength. You're picturing the, the dynamic between a baby crawling around on the ground and a Navy SEAL right? One seems so insignificant and humble and powerless, and the other one is great and mighty. Yet the psalmist says that strength is displayed through praise and worship of God. So no matter how insignificant you are, you can take on any power, any authority, because God establishes strength in the weak through praise, and through that praise they overcome the strong. And this framework that's throughout the scriptures is being established that we as Christians, we as gospel people, do not look to palaces or to kings for power, but we look to mangers and carpenters for the place where God is about to do something. Verse 5 says that you have made humanity a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. That phrase, a little lower than the angels, is just saying something about how lowly human beings are. Yet, and here's the contrast, God crowns us with glory and honor. We are lowly, but we are crowned with glory and honor, which means that God has given us a unique status. We've talked about this in the sermon series, that we are made in the image of God, which is something about who we are, a status that can never be taken away, and it's also something to do with a calling that God is calling us to participate in. We may, as human beings, be weak, but God makes us strong. We may be lowly, but God crowns us with glory. And to these lowly yet significant human beings, God has given this great mandate. And then we get to verses 6 to 8. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. And if you've been following this sermon series, you'll likely start to see where this language is coming from. It comes from Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 26 to be specific, which we have called in previous messages the cultural mandate, that we are called as human beings to rule or steward God's creation and that's a calling on our lives. The last two messages have looked at two different parts of and aspects of how we fulfill this calling. We consider God's calling in the relationships of marriage, family, and friendships. Last week, we considered God's calling in our different areas of work, in the marketplace, and at home. And now we're looking at both how our relationships and the type of work that God calls us to impacts culture. Remember how last week we considered that all types of work is like gardening. Whether you work with your head or your hands, whether you're in the field or in the office, whether in the marketplace or the home, each of these places are different gardens that you are stewarded and you're taking the resources and your talents at your disposal to see that it flourishes. Your work then connects to culture. What is culture? One of the words that uh, culture comes from is the word cultivate, which continues to tie into this imagery of gardening. 
When we work in gardens, the gardens of our life that we are responsible for, we're cultivating or tilling the soil. And when we are prepping the environment that we're responsible for, out of that soil, out of those areas of life, we grow culture. Now, if that's too theoretical for you, this is how it goes down in the form of a meme. Look at this one right up here. There we go. God creates humanity. Man creates garlic bread. God responds, now that's what I'm talking about. Now that, in a nutshell, is culture. That's what is exactly going on here. Sometimes memes are worth a thousand theology books, all right? That really helped me out there. You can put anything else there, like coffee or build a building. God creates man. Man continues to create, and God says, yes, that's my calling on your life, is that you take your gardens and you cultivate them, and then culture is built out of that. A more academic definition comes from theologian John Bolt, who says that culture is, quote, accumulated communal wisdom about the world that can be passed on, and that can be passed on from person to person, from community to community, from civilization to civilization. Culture is a lot of different things. It's a system of truth claims and moral obligations. It's the sense that you grow up and you don't question certain things that you believe because that's just the way it is. That's culture. Culture is built on history. Generations and centuries of history plays into our culture as we experience it right now. Culture includes different ideas and peoples, but also infrastructure and institutions also participate in culture making. Culture is diverse, and God created it to be that way. God created an incredibly diverse and pluralistic global culture. There's different foods and art and architecture and leisure that is for us to enjoy and to appreciate as we look at the diversity of that around the globe. God didn't create a world capable of only producing, for example, one type of meal like meat and potatoes. He created a world and a culture that's diverse, a world that offers pizza and smoked brisket and tacos and seafood and gyros. That's the diversity of how God has created our wonderful world. But also, these are all reflecting on the beauty of culture, but the other reality is that we know that culture is depraved. Culture can be unjust and wicked. Culture not only produces beautiful things, the things that I've mentioned, but also terrible injustices like human trafficking and slavery and abortion. Work culture, your work culture can be suffocating. You can live and participate in a community that's abusive and neighborhoods can be unloving and unjust. And that's also the reality of culture that we experience. Yet whether it's for good or evil, we're always making culture. You're a human being, and every human being cannot help but make culture. If you have a friendship, if, if you're married, if you're raising up the next generation, if you work, if you're doing any of those types of activities, then you are participating in culture making through those relationships and through that work. Culture is both a bodily and a spiritual activity. When we participate in culture making, our bodies remind us that we are limited in what we can do, and we are highly impacted by the world around us. 
For example, you can't stop Minnesota winter. It's coming, it's nice today, but we all know what's going to come, and our bodies will remind us of being cold. Yet, we can build homes with fireplaces and boilers to get us through it. We may not be able to eradicate every disease and virus, but we can develop medicines and vaccines to deal with that. So the bodily reality is that we are limited, that we're vulnerable, but the spiritual reality is that we can now have capacities to create things that provide safety or relief from the things that threaten us or the things that remind us of our vulnerabilities. All these things that we participate in when we make culture impacts the course of history. Remember, we already talked about this, that God's plan from the start is to begin the story with a garden and end it in a new heavens and new earth, a new city that he wants us to develop and to take this garden and see that it flourishes and that we use the space and the talents that we have to promote human flourishing. And that's what we're doing, and when we do that, we are participating in making and shaping history. And one of the things we know about history is that there's never a guarantee that from generation to generation, history will always get better. In some areas, we sometimes improve, and then sometimes we have a way of regressing. Yet, the work and culture of humanity has brought great benefits that we should appreciate and praise God for. Now, I'm a person that I'm personally fascinated and deeply enjoy the culture from the early 1900s, the turn of the century. I enjoy the dress style of that. If I could wear a tweed uh, suit every day of my life and you guys wouldn't pick on me, I would do that. I would totally do that. I love that. I love the music from that era. I love, and I, this is one of the reasons I love St. Paul, I love the buildings from that era. I mean, you can totally tell a house or a high-rise downstairs, that, uh, downtown rather, that was built uh, at the turn of the century versus like the mid-modern era, which is mainly depraved stuff, right? And it's just like I love that era and I'm drawn to it. Yet, I would never trade living in this present moment for living back then. First of all, they didn't have air conditioning. That rules it out from the start. That's something that was developed later. And if you uh, know my, my personal story, I had a battle with um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and my particular chemo cocktail was not developed at that time. So if I lived in one of my favorite eras of society, I would not have made it to my 40s. That is all because of culture-making of the human society in ways that we have benefited and grown as we have, have been developing this garden into something that promotes human flourishing. And that's how it shapes history and how it impacts us in deeply personal ways. Now, if I have you thinking now, yeah, this is culture, that all makes sense, but what business is any of this of the church? Isn't the church's task just to simply proclaim the gospel, gather as a church, and just keep it limited to that sphere? Like, why, why even bring all this up? Does the church have anything to do with engaging culture? Well, I would first say that there's an element of concern that I share with somebody who would ask a question like that. And that is this, that proclaiming the gospel 
is the primary task of the church because there is a sense of urgency with gospel proclamation that, that, that sin is real and we are depraved and taken up into sin and we are constantly threatened by the power of death. And that salvation from that comes from one name and one name alone, and that is Jesus Christ and what he has achieved in his death and resurrection. So that message and that declaration, that good news, is the primary and urgent task of the church. Yet, the Christian faith can never be just limited to gospel proclamation only. Why? Why is that? Because we don't want to leave all other areas of life outside of the church, the life of culture and society, to their own devices. We don't want to do that. The reason God has saved us is also to call us to participate in culture for the life of the world. We are not saved just for our sake, but that we would be light and salt in our world and in our culture. And also, what would it say to the world for the church to just say, we're going to withdraw from this dumpster fire and just focus on proclaiming the gospel? Because the heart of the gospel, is it not, is God's love for the world. God did not look at the world and say, eh, looks too difficult, looks too complicated, sounds stressful to talk about these things around the holiday dinner table. I'm just going to like back out of this. No, God so loved the world that he gave. He gave, he leaned in, he engaged. So the Christian life does not withdraw from culture and the world because our calling is to reflect the love of God to the world and not just to keep it to ourselves. Yet this is something that's important to keep in mind. Christianity's value and the gospel is not dependent on our cultural influence. Because at this point, you might be thinking, yeah, like I've always wanted a pastor to stick it to those Christians that they just want to withdraw and to fortify and to hide. But here's the other reality. Our mission is not dependent on our cultural influence. Our value is not attached to whether or not we're winning culture wars. It's not. The only reason we engage is for the sake of love, not winning. We engage because we are shaped by the love of God and we want to participate in these things because that's valuable in and of itself. My, the theologian that I've been following as I've been writing this sermon series, Herman Bobbing, calls Christianity or the gospel a pearl. That regardless if anybody else values it, regardless of its impact in the world around you, it's still a pearl in and of itself. It's infinitely valuable for what it is, regardless of its impact or regardless of how well we do. Our stock value as a church doesn't rise and fall in heaven based on our cultural influence or our usefulness to society. In Christ, we are loved and valued regardless of our participation in these things. And it's also a reminder, and this is how I want to close, that this engagement with culture is not all on us. 
that we are the ones that have to figure this out, that it's the power of our own humanity that is going to figure this out. We are not the great heroes in cultural engagement. Jesus Christ is the great hero. And that's why I wanted to start with Psalm 8, because Psalm 8, when you get to the New Testament, isn't ultimately fulfilled in us and our faithfulness to this mandate, but the writer of Hebrews shows us that Psalm 8 is ultimately fulfilled in the Son of God. Look at Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. And this is where he quotes the psalm that was our basis today. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now look at how the writer of Hebrews applies that passage. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, that is Jesus Christ, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. That's why we still experience the reality of culture wars. But we see him for who a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of what? Of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. How is Jesus becoming and is the great hero of redeeming the world and restoring us and the culture around us? How is he going to do that? Well, God brought Jesus Christ low, in his humanity and in his humiliation on, through the death on his, on his cross. Yet, he is crowned with glory. He's not only crowned with thorns on the cross, and it's this brief moment of death. The Son of God is then exalted and crowned with glory because he defeats death and sin and injustice through the power of the resurrection. Jesus Christ is fully human, and as a fully human person, he is our representative, but he's also fully God, and he takes his rightful place of having uh, his status of lordship over all of creation. We don't fulfill this task of restoring culture apart from Christ. It's impossible. We are not going to be able to do it. It's only in Christ that we can engage culture at this level. We often fail to remind ourselves of this. We often try to change the world differently than the way that Christ is changing it. We often become more like the world rather than holy and faithful in our engagement. We often get frustrated and withdraw from life in the world. And we often try to change the world and culture through fighting rather than humility. Yet in the gospel, we see that Jesus changes the world through faithfulness, through his presence, and his exaltation through suffering. And we will do no better than to participate in those ways if we really want to make a difference and change the environment around us. Because that's how Jesus, through his church, is changing and restoring culture. Now we're going to move to a couple different things now in the second half of our service. Uh, I will prep communion in a little bit, but before we take communion, we are going to do child dedications. 
And if you're unfamiliar with our liturgy as a church, the reason we place this here, both communion, child dedications, and most of our songs are after the sermon is because this is the part of our liturgy where we respond. We engage God's word, God speaks to us through his word, and we want to respond. And even in a sermon about talking about restoring culture, one of the, the gardens where that takes place is through the garden of parenting. 